Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Banker Midweek. Today, your midweek editors are Liz Lumley and Marie Kempley. Hello, Marie. Hi, Liz. Hello. Thanks. Now, you're joining us from The Banker's sister publication, uh, formerly known as Global Risk Regulator. Yes, yes, that's right. What's so it we're, called now? <laughs> I say, we're currently going through a rebrand, so that is a very on-point question. Um, we're going by the working title of FinReg Specialist, but mm. watch this space. That may also be changing quite soon, but that's to be revealed. Excellent, excellent. Um, we'll be definitely talking about um, regulations during the show today. So as our listeners know, the Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on the Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future banker stories. So before we get into some of those, it's conference season. Um, I am heading off to Money 2020 next week and also EBA Day at the end of the month, but I've just come back from the Cross-Border Distribution Conference in Luxembourg, which is supported by FD Live. Um, and this is more of the asset management world. Um, and we had a lot of discussions around uh, chat GDP, uh, AI, tokenization, and of course, a lot of issues around ESG, which is top of everyone's mind. It's always good for bankers to spend time on the fun side, I think, to have the buy and the sell side together as a love fest. Um, Joy McKnight, um, our editor, has just come back from the Women's World Banking's Making Finance Work for Women's Summit 2023. I said yeah, that all. Mouthful, well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was held in Mumbai. And so she chaired a panel that was called the S Factor, Shifting Focus in ESG Investments, with which discussed the business imperative of prioritizing social goals, particularly women's financial inclusion and empowerment, and the importance of data, as well as practical advice on embedding and tracking social metrics in a company's ESG strategy. So we are all spreading around the world here at The Banker. But let's go to The Banker site right at the moment. So we're starting off with a story written by yourself, Marie. Uh, Tighter supervision for U.S. regionals almost inevitable. The official post-mortem of Silicon Valley Bank does not make for an enjoyable read. Michael S. Barr, vice chair for supervision at the Federal Reserve, was tasked with conducting a rapid review of the bank's failure and the regulatory and supervisory circumstances surrounding it. And he does not hold back. He does not, Marie. So can you give us some insight into this? Yeah, sure. And just to say, you know, the almost inevitable is quite important there. We can maybe talk about why almost rather than completely <laughs> inevitable. But yeah, for in terms of Michael Esbar's report, yeah, I mean, it's quite a critical report. But it's interesting because within it, there's this kind of dichotomy, which has been there throughout this entire post SVB period about trying to get beneath what happened there and what the problems are, etc. And, you know, regulators, bankers, everybody was at pains in the kind of days and weeks following the, that kind of event to say, OK, but the US banking system, the US financial system is really very sound and reliable and it's all kind of fine. And trying to really paint the problem as one to do with mismanagement at those specific banks, so like mm. SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Republic, and uh, Signature Bank uh, were the kind of main three there, weren't they, in, in the US, certainly. Um, and nobody kind of disputes that there was... It's quite funny. I, I, I get nervous saying things like this as a journalist. You worry about libel, but I think I'm yeah. quite... But everybody has been quite happy to say... They have all say, failed. Exactly. That's every, a fact. No, that bit I'm fine. But <laughs> yeah. everybody has been quite happy to actually say, no, these 
these banks were mismanaged. So mm. fine, I'm happy to throw that out there as well. They were. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> kind of says that. This report says that. But then on the other hand, you've got the supervisor kind of accepting, OK, there were some big failures on our side as well. So that's pretty quite a big deal, really, mm. because, as I say, it kind of <laughs> changes the narrative away from, oh, it was just these three banks and don't worry. It's like, well, actually, no, there is a kind of bro broader problem over here. So it's quite mm. it's quite significant. Um and he's suggested in this report, I won't go through it all now, but quite a lot of different changes that he thinks should be happening. Some of them around the kind of regulatory rules. So in terms of like the actual kind of different capital limits and, and ratios, et cetera, that the banks need to conform to. But also in terms of how the supervisors are interacting with those banks. So should they be doing it more frequently? There was also, and this is where it does get quite interesting as well, there was also during the Trump era a rollback of certain uh, mm. rules that applied mm. to the types of banks we're talking about here, like SVB, uh, the kind of large regional banks. And they, there were rules in place that made the supervision of them quite tight, you know, in the wake of the global financial crisis. And then those rules were kind of watered down. And uh, Joe Biden, um, you know, you can uh, decide <laughs> to what extent that's about, you know, making political capital out of this moment. That's just, you know, or and to my mind, whether what he's saying is quite sensible has said, well, actually, that needs to be undone. Those rules mm. need to come back into play. And there's a lot of kind of um, tallying with what with what Joe Biden said versus what this report says as well, actually. But again, you know, you can get quite into all of this from a kind of political perspective, because, of course, and I find this fascinating as a Brit, you know, in the US, of course, the Federal Reserve is a political institution, right? It's got people that are Republicans, that are Democrats. Michael S. Barr is a Democrat. So um, <laughs> and you've since had uh, Republican um, Governor Michelle Bowman come out and say, oh, OK, well, I don't want any massive sweeping banking regulatory changes mm. coming in. So this could get quite interesting. Yeah. That's why I say the kind of almost inevitable because you never know. <laughs> oh, yep, yep. Yeah. You got you got to you got to you got to check yourself. I mean, it's yeah. interesting. The I do agree. I think whenever when this sort of the banking saga first started, um, I do. Everyone talked about contagion, and mm. I do agree with you. I think they were specific problems at these specific banks, uh, which which collapsed, and they were very much tied to um, a, a certain sector. Of, of the business world, the, the startup world. And I know usually with postmortems, people are looking for a smoking gun. Mm. But I think it's kind of more nuanced than that. There has been this, especially with my experience with fintech companies and startup companies, this idea that you don't actually need to understand how banking works to offer banking services. And I think that mindset was very prevalent at some of these banks. And I think you very much do need to understand how banking works here at a bank. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course, and then of course, there's also this idea that regulation is there to hinder innovation and to mm. hinder progress when, um, you know, if, if it had been a bit stricter, maybe some of these banks would have still been around today. But yeah, America's very sort of anti-regulation environment anyway. Um, but no, they're market-led. You have to be balanced. Um, so moving on to another thing, which is interesting about sort of the survival of banks. So what struck me was a story on the site about commerce banks restructure pays dividends. So um, a board member responsible for the corporate clients at Commerce Bank, Michael Coatsbauer, talks to uh, a contributor of ours, Andrew McDowell, about how the tough retrenchment process has left the German lender in a stronger position to weather further storms. Now, the reason why I picked out this story, just a, a little bit more from this particular story. So in February 2023, Commerce Bank rejoined Germany's benchmark DAX index after being removed in 2018. So the bank's 
historic departure from the DAX, losing its official status as a blue-chip company, was driven in part by doubts over its capacity to restructure. Now, 2018 is an interesting time because that's around the time you know, of course, you know, again, as a journalist, you know, we don't necessarily report on rumors, but we go to a lot of conferences and the state of European banks is something that is talked about a lot. So at Cybos last year, I had a number of people say to me, they give Credit Suisse six months. And wow. that's what it was. It was <laughs> almost um, Deutsche Bank was in this list as well. There were some rumors a few years ago about Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank mergings, almost on the same lines as UBS and Credit Suisse merged. Uh, Deutsche Bank has had a, a restructuring. We talked about this uh, last week on the Bank of Midweek. And now Commerce Bank seems to have uh, heeded some of these whispers and rumors and is um, uh, restructuring as well. So maybe the uh, reports of European banks' deaths have been um, overblown. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, it's a really tricky one to call, isn't it? And I think, yeah, the whole Credit Suisse one is really fascinating because, of course, they'd, a few months before their demise, they'd come out with what they hoped, I guess, was a pretty impressive uh, restructuring package of their own. And mm. I guess the thinking there was if maybe they'd had t some time for some of that to bed in, you know, maybe what ended up happening wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened. Obviously, yeah, Commerce Bank, I guess out of the kind of banks we've been discussing, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, it's not been in, in the headlines as much as those guys for having problems. So maybe it's just been kind of allowed quietly behind the scenes to get on with this stuff. And maybe that's worked out in its favour. I mean, some of the longer term issues with European banking are are still there. They haven't kind of mm. gone away. But yeah, I don't want to sit here and predict anything about anybody. <laughs> so that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> but, I know. Yes, yeah. officially, we want to have a nice summer. No bank collapse. <laughs> For the next six months. Um, the next one's a little bit about, it's specifically about Bolivia, but I think there's a wider issue to discuss. So Bolivia's economic model called into question. This is written by our Latam editor, Barbara Pianese. So Bolivia's foreign currency crisis reflects several short-term problems, including the global rise in interest rates around the world and higher fuel prices because of the war in Ukraine. Um, but it also stems from longer-term problems, including the reduction of hydrocarbon exports. So the reason why I pulled this out is not necessarily to talk specifically about um, Bolivia, but the shorter-term problems that are listed in the article, you know, the rise in interest rates, inflation, the rise in fuel, um, having an impact on different countries and different regions. Do you, I mean, do you think we'll see more regional global economic fallout from these short-term problems? Yeah, I, I mean, almost certainly. And, and the short term, I noticed you did kind of air quotes to me in the <laughs> studio, and I think that's very apt, right? Because these issues around inflation, interest rate rises, nobody knows exactly how that's going to pan out and how mm -hmm. long that stuff's going to take to filter through. I mean, I'm certainly not an emerging markets expert, but I guess what we've seen in terms of the fallout from like these interest rate rises and that, you know, and th these kind of issues seem to be cropping up in unexpected yeah. places, like all the banking fallout we've just been talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's, that's not emerging no, markets No, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's mm. coming up in all kinds of different economies. And I guess the general uh, conclusion, uh, trend, theme, whatever you want to call it, you can draw together from this is if there's any kind of weakness within your business model as a company mm. or um, uh, your economy as a country, it's these kind of m moments of shift in how the economic uh, fundamentals, is, if that's the right way of putting it, are, that's really going to be when these kind of things are exposed, right? Because everybody mm. got so used to low interest rates and cheap money and it's now we're almost having to flick See, the switch and go the other way and it's you know yeah, it, yeah that, sorry that no no i agree that that phrase though and i'm, I'm not it's not having to go at you mm. got used to low interest rates i know the interest rates were low for a very long time but 
stuff that goes down goes up. I don't understand, like this, I will always be surprised at, not necessarily Bolivia, but different banks not putting in their risk models, especially after COVID, yeah. with quantitative easing, which most economists predicted would have a rise in inflation. And when inflation rises, central banks rise interest rates. Yeah, I know. No, on paper. And when you put it like that, it's completely obvious. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe I'm just a very cynical person. Or I don't know. But I just I assume that people make decisions based on what's in front of them right there and then. And I think a lot of that kind of thing is not pointing fingers yeah. at any particular person or that I have some special insight. I really, really don't. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I worry kind of to your point. I think there's going to yeah. be a lot of stuff's going to come out of the, the woodwork in the next few years that maybe we can't predict and, and yeah mm. I don't think it's all gonna be very good <laughs> so the next story uh, now these are some sources of insight and information that come from outside the bank <gasps> and I went far and wide for this I went to the FT um, not that far away so this this story and I'll tell you why this story struck me as interesting Temas cuts pay of employees behind the failed 275 million dollar bet on FTX so the Singaporean state investor Temas cuts the pay, um, where they invested in FTX, which was Sam Bankman-Fried's cryptocurrency exchange that collapsed last year, and he is now awaiting trial and will probably spend time in prison. So um, what I found interesting about this is not necessarily about the, the, the collapse of FTX and, and, you know, the obvious, well, you know, allegedly we'll find out in the trial uh, the, the fraud that was committed but whenever you look at investments, it always says there's a there's a chance you won't make a return. You know, that's that's the deal. It's not guaranteed money. And so this was an investment that didn't that didn't uh, didn't pan out. Why punish the employees for something? I mean, it's like this, you know, bailing out the banks in the in the in the in the U.S. There's a lot of reasons behind it. But there's something there's a little little part of me which, which is thinking, well, this is an investment that did not make a return. That happens. Yeah. So are we going to move into a, you know, it's kind of like everyone gets a, a ribbon for running the race, whether they want or not. <laughs> It's like no one can ever lose money on an investment or a, or a, or a trade or um, what, what kind of mindset is going into the financial system right at the moment? Do you, yeah. do you have these same worries? No, <laughs> it's really hard. You know, I, I, I think in a general sense, I, I agree with you, of course, mm. you never like even the well, nobody invests and gets everything right. Just nobody. It never happens. Mm. Of course, it doesn't, um, you know, but. You often see, and just to kind of play devil's advocate, and I, I don't necessarily have this view myself, but you too often, like often in the media, we see this thing about, you know, at banks or financial institutions that there, there being this reward for failure, and you know, mm. bankers' bonuses being too high, etc. So this is almost, in a way, for some people, I imagine a refreshing <laughs> change to that. It's like, oh, okay, you know, it didn't do well, so, you know, that it's not a reward for failure, but. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think also with this instance, it's kind of wrapped up in all that wider stuff around crypto, isn't it? Yeah. And I know you, you know, talk I mean, about it, that a lot on, on here. But like for some people, of course, the jury is still out around the <laughs> rights or wrongs <laughs> of investing in crypto, and it feels like yeah. here the the sing, this, the uh, the fund uh, Temsec has got its fingers burned quite badly here, and is mm. quite keen to make a public statement. Right? It's like, oh yes, and they're very sorry, and now we're going to dock their pay. You know, it's it seems to me less around the fundamental thing around the investment and more about the public 
Maybe, image yeah. Around it, there was you know? an, a quote in the article that said, although there was no misconduct by the investment team in reaching their investment recommendation, the investment team and senior management were ultimately responsible for investment decisions made to collective accountability and had their compensation reduced. So they basically fell on their swords. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, cri- crypto doesn't scam people. People scam people, as someone told me. <laughs> <laughs> At the Digital Asset Summit a few weeks ago. Take that what you will. Okay, so our final story here is one um, that we uh, we received before it was published in the FT, and it's been getting a lot of traction on uh, on LinkedIn and other social um, social platforms. This is a letter from the editor of the FT on generative AI. So in, in it, um, she says, Our journalism will continue to be reported, written and edited by humans, who are the best in their field. So this is basically a commitment that um, that, that AI advances that we've all been uh, observing over the past few months, specifically from chat GDP. There's a large language model from Bloomberg. Google's now come out in Microsoft with their own versions. Um, and so this is, uh, uh, there's a lot of talk about you know, people writing school papers using AI. Um, and I guess this is addressing whether or not uh, a journalist would write a story um, using AI. I, I don't think I personally would right at the moment, but um, have you ever played with it yet? <laughs> <laughs> I have a little bit. You know, it's very mm. funny. We were talking right at the beginning of this conversation about, you know, us launching this new title or rebranding uh, Global Risk Regulator, as it used to be. And, of course, that's been quite a torturous process of <laughs> trying to come up with new alternative titles. And just as you know, I thought, you know, let's see what it would come up with. I, th- yeah. I had a little go. And the reassuring thing to me was it couldn't come up with anything better than what we'd been kind of <laughs> so you know in a way I think that kind of speaks to me about what kind of stuff it is still useful for it's that kind of early stage idea generation kind of thing mm. putting something in and you know oh this might be an interesting area for further exploration but not giving it the responsibility for doing the fundamental work and I know for banks of course they're all looking at things like can it be used in surveillance or these mm. other kind of I don't want to say menial tasks, but maybe menial tasks, you know, that are quite boring for people. And I think that's okay. I think at the moment it obviously still needs huge amounts of human intervention and monitoring. And for journalists, that's reassuring in the sense Mm. of I don't think it could at the moment write a plausible article, but Mm. in the future maybe. And that's when I get scared (laughs) and start freaking out. (laughs) I have played around with it and I have to tell you, just, uh, just excuse my narcissism. I put in write a story like Liz Lumley and it was kind of funny. They're like, Liz Lumley is a well-known financial journalist. Um, anyway, but it, it did say that I was a judge on Finnovate, which I w- have never been a judge on Finnovate. So it, oh, it, wow. it hallucinates a bit. But I can yeah, see yeah. where it went down that route. But I was kind of thinking about this. Although, I mean, I think that would be appalling to ask ChatGDP to write an article on, you know, quantum <laughs> computing for the banker um, and then just hand it in. I, you know, I, I don't hand in a story unless I use spell check. You know, I don't hand in a story unless I kind of see if there's any grammar stuff that pops up. I think the subs would probably plot my death if I, <laughs> if I if I didn't do that. So I'm just wondering whether, in terms of journalism, in terms of what we do, it might end up being like a little, um, you know, like a little check in the writing. Mm. Like for example, I I had an error in a story that was corrected. That I had the uh, the the white paper for Bitcoin. I said it came out in 2008. It actually came out in 2009. Um, would something like this flag that up, saying actually, this ch- check this fact? You mm. know, like how could it help us 
do our work in the same way kind of like spell check works or grammarly works or stuff like that yeah no i completely agree with you i think that's definitely the kind of thing in the future it will mm. be useful for yeah someday someday <laughs> well wonderful marie thank you very much for joining me on the banker midweek i greatly appreciate it no thank you i've really enjoyed it thank you for listening to the banker midweek part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at the banker available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix search on the banker podcasts to listen to more <laughs>